I do know JavaScript. Whoa. Don't quote me on that. Don't... <laughs> Don't extract that quote. Don't use that as a pull it's quote. It's going to put your yeah your face right next to it. Bold. I know JavaScript. Aaron Patterson, I know I JavaScript. Know JavaScript. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Jerome Goodrich. And I'm Thomas Counts. And you're listening to Collaborative Craft, a podcast brought to you by A-Flight. Hi, everyone. In this episode, Thomas and I have the wonderful privilege of sitting down and having some fun with Ruby and Ruby on Rails core team member, Aaron Patterson. Aaron, or Tenderlove as he's known on the internet, is a stalwart of the Ruby community. He's been writing and maintaining gems, speaking at conferences, and spreading Ruby's gospel for over a decade. And I'm super excited to speak with him because on top of being a prolific contributor and steward of that community, he also strikes me as someone who just wants to have fun. And I'm really curious to dig into how he keeps that playful energy. After catching him on a live stream recently, I'm also really excited to hear about his new project, TenderJit. So without further ado, let's go talk to Aaron. Welcome to Collaborative Craft. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> We're just here to hang out and all right. Yeah. Uh, have you talk about all the things you're excited about that you're doing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's collaborate <laughs> on <Ooh>. craft. <laughs> hey. Oh. Okay. Nice. <laughs> um, I I think you know just to to kick it off, we can talk about what you're working on right now with TenderJit sure. and yeah. Why? Yeah, sure. Why? Why write a compiler why, in Ruby? And yeah, know? yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Let's do. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, yeah. So I've, I've been working on that. It's mostly like a free time, like spare time, spare time project. But the thing is, like, so we're my team at work. Uh, I work for Shopify, mm-hmm. and my team at work, we're working on a JIT for Ruby called YJIT. Uh, and when we started working on this project, like uh, I didn't really understand how JITs work, and we like you're not the only. We have one. some. <laughs> I think we might want to back up and and maybe maybe even talk about what a JIT is and. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I just to finish up the motivation of tender JIT is sure. like we're working on a JIT. I didn't understand how it works. I wanted to better understand how it works, so I decided to write write my own in Ruby. Mm. Awesome. But yeah, let's talk about JITs in general. Yeah. So if you think about a compiler, you compile stuff, right? But what if you compiled stuff just in time? <laughs> <laughs> let's just wait until the last second. No, no, no. Actually, I have a better. I think I have a better explanation for this. So, like, normally you, you know, normally you compile a program. Like, you'd run Clang or GCC or whatever, and it compile. It compiles a program. Um, but what if you like waited until the last second? Like, defer compilation as much as you can. Like, wait mm-hmm. and then and then eventually do it. Um, and the advantage, like, I think. The question is like why why would you want to do that? Like why why would you want to wait until the last second to compile something? And 
the main reason for that is you can learn stuff about the program at runtime that you wouldn't be able to know at compile time. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea. Like if you would know, you'd be able to know like, oh, these two thing, these two objects that we're putting together or adding together, like let's just take the add operation for example, you'd be able to tell at runtime, oh, these are strings or oh, these are special objects or whatever, mm -hmm. like whatever it is that maybe you wouldn't know at compile time, you can figure it out at runtime and using that runtime information, the JIT compiler can optimize optimize code. Yeah, and not not to get yeah too much into the weeds or maybe to get into the weeds, um, but I guess with Ruby, it's easy to think like, oh, it's not a compiled language. Um, and so we're talking about like squeezing that compilation. It's between the time that the code is compiled or interpreted and the time that is run. And like, yes. there's a lot of intermediate kind of steps of translating from one, um, one you know, our source code into different machine codes, et cetera, and then runtime. There's a lot of intermediate compilation steps. Steps, and yeah, yeah. A just in time is like the right before comp, um, runtime. That's when we're going to compile line by line. Yeah, we're doing so. Our like the one that we're working on at work, and uh, Tenderjit is exactly the same. Like. I stole the whole, like, the whole thing. <laughs> the whole design is totally stolen. <laughs> there, there's no no original ideas here at all. <laughs> uh, the, like, ours is, ours is extremely lazy. Like, extremely mm. lazy. So typically, like, maybe a JIT compiler will look at an entire method and say, like, oh, I've seen that this method has been executed... Or whatever a bunch of times so i'm gonna i'm gonna convert it into machine code now um ours takes it even a step further where it's like okay uh inside your method maybe you have an if statement right and our JIT compiler says well i'm gonna compile up to the if statement and i'm gonna wait and check which side of the if statement executes mm. right and then i'm only gonna I'm only going to compile the side of the if statement that actually executes because wow. maybe you don't like maybe you don't use the other, you know maybe you don't use the other branch of the if statement so there's no point there's no point in compiling it. Right. So it's it's quite quite lazy. So, so what awesome. are the intricacies in understanding how that works? Like where where were you like? Oh my god, like this is this is freaking magic. Like I have no idea how this actually functions. Well, so okay, so so there is a there's a few different a few different things that I had to study. I had to study. So when I first started working on this, like I hate to say this. I didn't know I didn't know assembly language. I don't know I don't know x86 assembly and Essentially, what the JIT compiler is doing is taking your Ruby code and converting it into machine code, and something needs to be able to do that. Something, something has to be able to figure out, like, okay, how do I translate this? How do I translate this Ruby code into machine code? Mm -hmm. And the first version of YJIT at work, which actually we're going to be merging that into Ruby for the next release. Yeah, congratulations! It's uh, yeah. amazing. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's it's going to be great. Um, but what it does, like, what we do is we essentially have to say in there, like, okay, uh, 
when you compile the add method, we look at it and we're like, okay, we're actually gonna hand code, we hand code, like it's hand coded mm. craft artisanal <laughs> <laughs> machine code that we generate. <laughs> so we look at like, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna do the add, add method. So we actually convert that into the x86 add instruction, but we had to hand cut, like actually hand code those things, yeah. right? So you can think of uh, one way I like to think of the machine code that's generated is like probably we're familiar with making HTML templates with Rails, right? And you know, you put like, you have your ERB template and some of the stuff in the ERB template is dynamic. And we, you know, we compile the ERB template and then we execute it and some of it's dynamic and it, we have these placeholders in it. And that's exactly the same thing we're doing, like the JIT is doing but with machine code. Mm. So we have this machine code, essentially machine code templates. Mm -hmm. And then in those templates, we inject like particular values, like things that we learned at runtime. Mm. So since we had to do this hand coded artisanal <laughs> x86 code, I had to learn, like I had to learn machine code. So, but the thing is after doing this, I thought to myself like, can you, could we, so YJIT is written all in C, and I'm like, can we do this in Ruby? Like, why mm. why can't we just do this in Ruby? Mm -hmm. I'm a Ruby programmer. I like yeah. programming mm -hmm. Ruby. <laughs> the thing I really love about that is I I'm the same way. I am a Rubyist at heart. I think I think in Ruby, and I think on a much smaller scale. <laughs> I do kind of I guess your approach is like if I see a problem, I'm like. Right? Can I solve it in Ruby? And then if I need to use some other language and some other tooling, I can translate from Ruby into that. Um, but like, you you took that on in this like really big way, <laughs> entire JIT compiler. You were like, I'm gonna build this whole thing in public, uh, in 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 its entirety in Ruby. And you, yes. I, um, again, not to get too much in the weeds, but the way you kind of like used. Uh, like dynamically created those test files so you kind of could keep up with where you know where you're at in that process um i guess i'm trying to formulate a question and maybe it's around like just in time learning like it seems mm. like you're like i need to learn this thing and i i'm not necessarily familiar with assembly i'm not necessarily familiar with just in time compilers let me just dive in and get my hands dirty um, yeah that's my i'm a very hands-on learner like i can't eh. Honestly, I feel, I feel like I'm actually a pretty slow learner, though it's not, I don't know. Other people have told me it's not that I'm necessarily a slow learner, it's that I need to understand the whole, like, I gotta get a good mm -hmm. picture in my head of the whole, like the whole system before I can start diving in and being productive. Because mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of, at least for me anyway, like, I try to learn all this stuff hands-on and I don't feel productive or good, like, I feel pretty um, insecure, I guess. Mm. What I would say is like, I don't feel, I don't feel good. I don't feel like I'm doing, doing my best. So I, but it's just that I need a better picture of the overall system in my head. And the way I do that is with hands-on, like hands-on learning. So I'm like, okay, well, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna learn assembly, like, how does it, like, so what if these are the commands? Like, how does the CPU get it? Like, how do we give it to the mm -hmm. CPU, right? What bytes are we actually putting together? It's like, oh, this assembly language, we're actually just putting together strings. Mm. It's just that the bytes and the strings are special, and we need <laughs> to figure out how to like 
Like, how do you put together those bytes and the strings? And then, oh, it's a JIT compiler. We're just converting Ruby, like, YARV instructions into the machine code. Then how does all these pieces fit together? And for me, like, my style of learning is very hands-on. Mm. But but also to do that, to to be, as you mentioned, kind of insecure and do all of that in public, what, I guess, what motivates you to uh, do that? Part of it is, like... Well, so in this particular situation, part of it is that I thought it would be kind of funny because it's like, because <laughs> people think like, oh, we're going to write, we're going to write a JIT compiler. It's got to be very serious business. Mm, right. <laughs> can I do this? Can I do this in Ruby? And if I can do it and pull it off, it'll be like an amazing hack. Right. <laughs> and then, and then like people will be like, oh. Isn't this supposed to be a serious, you know, yeah. you're doing a JIT compiler. Doesn't it have to be in a serious, a serious, mm. you know, serious language? Like, no, we could do it however we want to, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was mainly to see, it was like mainly to see if I could, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That was, that was the motivation behind doing, doing this. So it was, a, it was one to see if I could, if it was possible and two, to uh, improve my own skills and maybe three is a long-term long-term goal. Like, I, I actually do think it would be cool if um, Ruby's JIT was implemented in Ruby. Like, mm -hmm. I I actually do believe that would be awesome. And if I could prove that it's feasible, then maybe like maybe there's a future for that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's that's really awesome, and that resonates with me a lot. Um, and yeah, speaking of of learning in public, this is maybe going down a little bit of a different path, but. I guess uh, during the pandemic, while everyone was baking sourdough, you were making cheese. <laughs> Speaking of artisanal, handcrafted. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm just curious about that. Like, wh wh where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. I, actually, <laughs> when did I've you been start making, making cheese? I've, I've, been making cheese for, I've been making cheese for a few years, but um, let's say I haven't been successful at it yet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I start like, why did I do it? I've been, I've been interested in, I guess, like hard to acquire foods, hmm. basically. Like I started doing, I started doing meat curing because I learned that like, it was at the time it was difficult to buy, um, it was difficult to buy cured meats, like properly done ones mm -hmm. and the reason is because you never cook them mm. and due to our like our food regulations everything's got to be cooked so it's very difficult to purchase these things mm -hmm. so i was i got interested in that so that's that was the first thing and then like the problem with with doing meat curing is like takes a long time and uh it's just a pain but it turns out that like all of the equipment for doing meat curing is basically the same as the equipment you need for making cheese. And you can, um, so <laughs> I was able to find milk that's not pasteurized. Mm -hmm. nice. So I'm like, all right, we got some illegal foods going on here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's like that's like how I got started with. I'm like I'm I'm gonna make some illegal illegal cheese. <laughs> so, 
that's yeah that, that's how i got started i was making cheddar so like i started making cheddar i i remember i started in 2019 because it was and i know this i know this because my plan was um i was gonna make cheddar for a year so what i would do is i would make one each month right because i don't know you don't know which how long you should cure it because you gotta like let it age right so i'm like okay i'm gonna make one each month and then at the end of the year i'll have 12 different cheeses that are all one month apart and i'm gonna have a big party and we're gonna do like blind cheese taste testing and i was super i was super excited about this and then boom COVID <laughs> hit and now i've got like a i, I got a fridge full of cheese <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty oh, so man. yeah it's karma for the for the illegal uh for the illegal milk <laughs> yes exactly yep open pandora's box flew flew too close to the sun <laughs> yep Oh, and to be clear, to be clear, it's legal in Washington, okay, yes. but it is not legal to transport it across state lines. So okay, <laughs> yeah. So I've been I I love I love making making cheese. I've been making it, and it's it's really fun to do. It's not too hard. Like it's not mm. as hard as making meats. The main issue is like you got to make sure that you get the um, temperature right, mm. temperature and humidity right, and the timing timing right as well and like i don't know i guess what i've learned about myself is that i don't really like hard cheeses i'm more of a soft cheese fan so that's really good to know about oneself yes like most people probably go throughout their life without knowing that (laughs) (laughs) so for nothing else that's great (laughs) me i'm a i'm a soft cheese person yeah i'm still figuring out i'm still on that journey <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for sharing that. I think uh, it's a testament to to how much I think you share in the broader community. I'm, there's a cross section of the cheese and tech community, I'm sure, but uh, with <laughs> with Tenderjet, all of your open source contributions, of course, which everybody knows about, and if they don't, they can go find out. And also your hardware projects, which I'm I'm personally really interested in. Yeah, we should talk. We should talk about hardware because I see your hardware posts, and I'm like, oh, this is cool stuff. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've been doing. I mean, honestly, I think during the pandemic, well. I guess pandemic's still going, but mm. I got really into I got really into doing hardware projects because one of the things I wanted to do was monitor my cheese <laughs> boxes, right? It all comes yes. back to cheese. Yeah, the dairy well, digression so, isn't over. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We we got a collaborative curve. We got to mil- milk it. We got to milk this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I wanted to monitor like it's important to know the temperature the temperature and the humidity and I wanted to monitor I wanted to monitor that because like the fridge I mean fridge that I'm using the temperature sensor in it is not very accurate Mm. (laughs) I want to make sure that it make sure we got all the stuff right and most fridges can't measure well actually I don't know of any fridges that measure humidity but you Mm. like I have to control the humidity as well. So I wanted to, I wanted a way to measure that and like react to it. So I was building, building sensors to do that. And then I reused, like I reused the same design to basically build sensors for throughout our house and stuff. 
Well, also I built them because we're ha we have like. Uh, actually, I don't know where y'all are based, but I'm up in Seattle, and we have had for the past, I don't know, few years we've been getting like uh, wildfires, mm. and smoke is a problem here. So like, I wanted to be able to measure like measure air quality. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I was working on like. I added that to the sensors as well. So the cheese one is like the first one, just temp and humidity. And then the rest, like I got more built on that and got more advanced. Yeah. And, and then sharing that with the community, I think, yeah, back to, I, I, I'm sorry that we're going to keep harping on this, but back to Jerome's earlier question, like the motivation behind, you know, sharing all of that. Um, I don't know if it's just intrinsic and you're just really excited to share or if they're well, I love sharing. So I love sharing stuff. Like I want, I don't know. I just build stuff. Like I build stuff and I'm like, everybody should be able to do this. Mm. Or, you know, I want to keep track of it and let, let other people build on it. I just think like, um, I guess in my small way, like hopefully I can help push society forward somewhat. Cause it's like, oh, now I don't have to reinvent this particular wheel. Mm. We've got some kind of base we can build on or, you know, just like try to push things, try to push things forward in an as accessible way as possible, I guess. That's why, that's why I like to do stuff in public, basically. Did, mm. did you have people in your past that I mean, did that for you? I don't know. <laughs> Not that I know of. It's like, it mainly, to me, it's like, Oh, when I was first learning how to code, open source was pretty important to me because, like, I didn't want to pay for a compiler. <laughs> Makes sense. Because when I started, like, when I started coding, you had to buy you had to buy compilers, and like, I'm sure if I had asked, my parents would have bought me a compiler. But like, <laughs> to convince them, like, oh hey, you know, I need a can you pay for a compiler? I'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like easier to be like, oh, okay, I got a free, I got a free compiler here. So it was really nice for me to learn from that stuff. And I mean, like, I mean, other types of knowledge are free too. It's like math. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, so, so it's just that type of stuff makes me, that type of stuff makes me really happy and, and pushes like, I don't know, helps motivate me and pushes me forward. Yeah, to, to that end, I, you've been around in the Ruby community, it seems like, forever. How how did you get involved? Like, where's what, what's your uh, origin story? Sure. Um, so I've been, a, <clears throat> I've been a professional programmer since, um, I guess, the end of 1999. Mm -hmm. Um, I started doing, I started doing Ruby full-time in like 2006 or 2008, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe it was 2006. I'm not sure exactly, but like when I first started programming as my job, I was a Perl programmer. And then around that time, like in the early 2000s, there was the dot-com bubble and then the burst. And, uh, it was kind of hard at that time, like they said basically my my company decided to switch to java mm -hmm. and the cto was like either you need to learn java or 
you need to find a new job. And I was like, I will choose to learn Java because I don't really want to find a job right now. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but I, I remember thinking at the time, like, well, when Perl 6 comes out, nobody will care about this Java stuff anymore. <laughs> and <laughs> all I got to do is, all I need to do is, like, wait for Perl 6. And, I mean, I guess Perl 6 is out now. Like, I guess it's out and, and stuff. But, I mean, that was a long time ago, right? And one of my coworkers went to the, I think it was the No Fluff conference or something uh but dave thomas was speaking there about ruby they came back to the office and was like oh hey check out this check out this programming language and i was like wow this is exactly what i want to do like this is what i wanted Perl 6 to be like this is this is it i was super happy so well actually let me let me temper that a little bit it was um i was very happy with the programming language but it made me very very sad about my job Mm. Because you're sitting there, like, this is, when I was doing Java, it was before generics or any of the nice stuff that's in the Java programming language now. So, like, in order to do just a simple map, like, if you did a raid on map, whatever, you have to be like, okay, I need a new iterator, mm-hmm. and now I got to do a while, while next thing, and it's like, oh, now I got to cast that thing to a thing, and now I, got, now I can do the transformation, and then I can push it onto this other thing. And I'm just sitting there, like... I could have been done with my job like hours ago. Why am I why am I writing all of this garbage right now? Mm. And it actually made me really depressed. I'm like I could have done this. Like I could be done. I don't want to do this now. <laughs> I still feel so, about Java. <laughs> well, so so this is like what bring what brought me getting back to what brought me to the Ruby community is I wanted to learn how to do Ruby well Mm. i wanted to become a ruby programmer Mm -hmm. so what i did was is i started like literally while i was waiting for app to compile because it would take (laughs) like 10 minutes to compile or whatever right while i was waiting for the app to compile what i would do is i would read existing Perl libraries and i would just port them to ruby Mm. that's all i would do is i would sit there and be like okay how do i write this in like how do i write this in ruby and if you look at the first gems that I've ever published, they're they're just like ports from from Ruby. Mm-hmm. So I mean I figured like, well, we're using I'm translating open source open source Perl code into into Ruby code, so I sh- it's probably important to make that public too. So I just, you know just did that. And that's like basically how I got my basically how I got my start doing open source Ruby stuff. Yeah, if um would you have any uh advice or recommendation for someone today who wants to participate in the Ruby community either contributing or you know participating in all the other things that yeah. Ruby has participated in? Yeah, of course, come participate. Please come uh, send a patch to Tenderjit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, seriously, like, please yeah. send, please send me a patch. I, I really, I really would like that. Uh, I don't know that. Like, I think the advice I give to most people, my, so my story, the story that I gave you is a little bit unique because at that time, at that time there just weren't many Ruby libraries out there, so that was mm-hmm. like a really easy way for me to do, to do that, right? 
but now since the community is much more mature, I think what I recommend to most people is take a look at the code that you use today. Like are you if you're using Rails or whatever, take a look at, you know, try to figure out how that thing that you're using works. Because that's the thing that you like that's the thing that you're using day in and day out. So you should be pretty like learn how it works. Take a look at the source code for it. And if you do that, like I guarantee you'll find bugs. Hmm. If something if something behaves weirdly or doesn't do what you expect, figure out why it does that. Like go dive in and try to figure out exactly why it does that. And you'll either either you'll come away with more knowledge about the thing that you're working with, or maybe you'll find a bug and be able to be able to contribute that upstream. And either way it's a like either way it's a win for you, right? Yeah. So that's the advice I try to give most people. I think a lot of other people say like documentation, but personally I find writing documentation to be boring. So <laughs> <laughs> I know it's terrible because documentation is so important. It's so important, but I just don't want to do it. <laughs> well, there are people who love writing it. So, you know, yes, they sure. should, you're, you're letting them flourish, taking the back seat. Letting them I'm, take. take yep, I'm that. making space for them to do the stuff that I don't. <laughs> I have no interest in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I I I really love that. The <laughs> I specifically just trying to figure out how things work. Um, I think you're you're really good at that, and continuing on kind of the or pulling on the tenuous thread that our conversation has <laughs> currently. Um, Given, given your experience with figuring out how things work, we, we talk a lot, or we try to talk a lot about ambitious projects on this podcast. And I feel like structuring your learning in such a way where you can figure out how something works is somewhat of an ambitious project. And I'm wondering what, what that looks like for you. Maybe it's different for every project, but if, if there's some kind of archetypical way that that you think about these things i'd love to sure hear about it. i mean i like for me personally i don't know like i said i feel like i'm kind of a i'm kind of a slow learner and i need to figure out like i need to figure out it's really important for me to figure out the um the boundary of the problem that i'm looking at or tackling so usually i start at like I start at the beginning uh and but what I mean by that is like let's say for example I want to know how I want to understand how Ruby works well the first thing I do is I go look for the main function mm. and I like I literally like open up the project pull up my editor look for main read it and be like oh it calls this other function all right I'll go check out that function I read that one and then I just keep like I just keep doing that until I find like over and over until I find the thing like figure out what it is that I'm looking for. And once I get f more familiar with the project, then I'll be like, well, how does this other thing work? And I just repeat that, dive into this, like dive into that other thing and read, read how that works. Which is why I say like if you're using a framework like Rails or whatever, it's you know. What is something that you do frequently? Maybe you're calling save on models or something. Like, go look for the save method and see, like, see what it does. And I don't know. That's my. I guess my my style is find the function, find the entry point, read it, 
go to the next one. Like, just repeat that. Rinse and repeat, basically. <laughs> Where's this thing imported from? I also go add another thing I do. It's probably, I don't know if this is, like, too nitty-gritty, but I totally put, like, prints <laughs> in, like, prints in places. I'm like, oh, how does this thing, ex-, you know, like, does this thing execute? Does it actually execute? Let's put a print in there and make sure that it's actually running. Because, like, maybe I read the code and maybe I don't understand... Or I'm not, I doubt my understanding, right? I feel like, oh, I think I understand how this works, but am I, am I right? Mm -hmm. Am I really right? I want to check my answers. So I'll add like prints in there and try running, like try running the code and make sure it does what I think it does. So that's a, that's another thing I like to do. Third, that really resonates. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like we're birds of a feather in that regard, especially with the prints. That's... Mm. they're everywhere (laughs) yeah it's hard so it's it's like i think one thing you have to do is um you gotta find that technique for whatever project it is that you're working on i guess this is again i'm speaking from my experience whatever project i work on i have to figure out what that what that print is Mm -hmm. right so in ruby i'll just be like puts Mm. okay and in C, I'll be like, okay, printf. Um, but in, so for example, in machine code, since that's what we're working on in YGID and TenderJIT, it's like, well, how, I can't really print something. So what do I do to understand, like, understand how this works? Mm-hmm. And in that case, you can, what I found is you can give a special instruction to CPUs so you can say like execute this instruction and what it does is it it runs a breakpoint like it sends a signal to break your debugger interesting so the cpu understands how to stop in a debugger so what i'll do is i'll throw those things in and be like okay did this actually execute and i'll see i'll see on the screen ah yes it halted so yeah i know i know that that worked or i'll do like when i'm doing hardware projects it'll be like okay blink an led mm. right did this is this thing actually working let's make sure that the led blinks so you got to figure out that like the feedback loop yeah yeah exactly the feedback loop like how do you how do you figure that out for each or how do you do that for each project each project that you're working on and, and is that like a prerequisite to kind of diving in and doing the thing that you actually want to do like do you feel like you need that to be established before you can you know, do the um, work. I mean, not necessarily, but it's something that I it's something that I think about because I'll I'll like dive into any project and maybe I don't know like maybe I don't know that particular thing, but I do draw on my experience. I was like, okay, well, in C, I would have done this. Perl, I would have done or Ruby, I would have done this. Like, whatever. And now I'm in, I don't know, whatever project it is. Say I'm doing a JavaScript project or something. Like, how would I have? If this were a different language, how would I have established that that feedback loop? And then, based on that, I'll try to figure out how to do it in the target in the target language. And if I can, I'll just get away without use. You know, if I can do if I can do the task that I need to do without figuring that out, great, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but eventually, eventually, I might have to figure that out. I do know JavaScript. Whoa! Don't quote. Don't quote me on that. Don't. 
don't extract that quote. Don't extract. Don't use that as a pull it's quote. It's gonna please. put your yeah your face right next to it. Bold. I know JavaScript. Air Patterson. I know I JavaScript. Know <laughs> I know in JavaScript how to log stuff. I can figure my way out around there, even though I'm like definitely not a JavaScript expert. I think that's what knowing JavaScript means. Oh, I wanted I wanted to talk to you. Uh, I just started using some type systems in Ruby. Um, do you are you familiar with NAND to Tetris or yes? Yeah. So I was going through NAND to Tetris, and I'm 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 a little bit. I think I have the same pro, proclivity as you do. I'm like, they give you this um, kind of hardware emulator that you download. Mm-hmm. It's a Java program. You spin it up, and then you write the the code to like build the chips. And I was like. It just feels like I don't understand how that hardware emulator is working, yeah. and it, and it's somehow bothering me that I'm u- just using this tool. But I'm like, can I do Nanda Tetris in Ruby? <laughs> because I think in Ruby. So I started writing it, and then I was like, oh, you know what? Like some types would be really helpful here because it's all pins or like on and off or, um, you know, there's it just seems like I could represent this in a in a a way that that the tooling can help me because once you start building these bigger and bigger chips and trying to connect all the pins, it gets really confusing without something to help you. So yeah, I started to use um, Sorbet, which I think the Stripe team uh, developed and is working on and they're integrating with RBI, which I think is going to be eventually um, merged upstream. So it seems really exciting. I hear a lot of mixed opinions about it. Uh, There was a ton of of talk about it um, in in the community at large and I'm curious to know if you've worked with any of these tools. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts, surprises, delights, questions, sure. comments, concerns about these tools? <laughs> so, so type systems. Yeah, we use we use um, a lot of type systems at work. So mm. the in in our Ruby code, like um, Shopify is also working with Stripe on Sorbet and the like, doing what is it? I don't know type systems, but that I guess. That gets to my opinion on type systems. I don't like them and don't use them. <laughs> even though even though it's like basically mandated at work. Like all mm. most of our most of our uh, Ruby application code is done done with like it's got types in it. And to be fair, like it's found a lot of bugs. So mm. it does its job. Like it works. It does it works as advertised. I'm just like lazy mm. i'm very lazy mm-hmm. i'm very like i don't want to type more stuff mm-hmm. i don't want to put more stuff in my code mm-hmm. and i don't like mm-hmm. looking at those i don't like looking at those things either and now that i'm like interestingly people say like oh if you have a type system like you can generate more efficient code because you know what the types you know what the types of the things are however our JIT compiler is so lazy like it figures out the types at runtime. Like you don't need oh, to put the types yeah. in because it knows at runtime. It like looks at it and it's like, oh, I know what the type is now. Cool. I will generate efficient code for this particular type. So, do you need to actually like you saved? If you wrote in those types, like cool, you saved one check. <laughs> <laughs> and once I once I learned that, I'm like, mm, not me. <laughs> Not me. I'm not writing that. Computers, computers got to do the work. That's what the computer's for. It's a, it's supposed to do the work. Not me. 
All right, so I'll hold off on that PR to introduce uh, Sorbet and Tender Jet. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it is the, like, I don't know. I don't want to downplay it too much because it is really cool, especially the data. Like, we found, we've been able to find the source of null pointer, you know, mm-hmm. null pointer mm-hmm. exceptions and untested paths um, and just different errors different errors that we would have had at runtime we're able to find them find them quite easily so the power is the power is there for sure i'm like i said i'm just lazy <laughs> just like a jet compiler yes yes <laughs> i feel like when you have the amount of experience that you do you you tend to navigate or get pulled towards more systems level thinking right so you you're in the cloud you're dealing with distributed systems and you know event buses and microservices and systems architecture and and that stuff and i guess not knowing really what you do at work uh it would seem to me that your interests lie not so much in that but more kind of in the, you know, in the language itself. How can we how can we make Ruby better? How can we make it faster? How can we make it more usable? Um, I'm I'm just curious about you know that that dichotomy. Like, uh, has has the cloud stuff ever ever yeah yeah no I see, I see what like, you're saying and I had I do have some thoughts like I do have some thoughts on this. Um, I yeah I don't I don't care about cloud. <laughs> 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 uh no like i don't know it's um i guess for me it's just how do i start where do i start on my thoughts about this i'm just interested in so i'm just interested in lower level like lower level stuff mm-hmm. uh mainly i just like i fell in love with the ruby programming language which is why i just focus on focus on that thing and my i don't know my like I get curious about how things work under the hood. Mm-hmm. I feel like if I were to go to the cloud, like if I were to do any type of cloud development, I'd immediately be like, oh, how does the cloud work? Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd be like, oh, it's actually just computers. And then in someone else's warehouse, like, oh, what are each of these computers? And I would just keep going down, like, yeah. whatever it is, I would just keep going down until I find like the end. Right. <laughs> until I find the end of it. So I, I I assume like by the time I retire I'll just be doing like I'll be a physicist doing chip yeah, design exactly. or something like that. <laughs> but but um, I don't know the 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 other thought I have about this is like I feel like as a well I don't know if it's true or not because I or what I'm about to say whether or not it's true but when you for me, I feel like I become more specialized. As I've gained more experience, I become a more specialized, more specialized developer. Mm. And I don't know if that's just like, I don't know if that's normal for a career path. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I haven't really, I think about this, right? I try to be introspective and I think about this a lot, but I don't know if it's if that's normal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So do you, you know, I don't see myself going into management through my through my career. Mm-hmm. So what do I what do I do? Mm-hmm. You know. So I I don't know. Like 
Yeah, that's 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 my thoughts on the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to be a manager? That's my thought. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for answering. Uh, what you said resonates with me. Like it does seem, and I feel it, it is a bit of a false dichotomy of like you become a generalist and like learn kind of surface level, you know, how things are connected and, you know, you learn your, your Kubernetes and your Kafka and AWS. Oh, man. And... Kubernetes. <laughs> Kubernetes. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. Oh my god, it's too Wait, hard. Wait, now you have to get started. No, it's <laughs> too it's too hard. It's too mm. hard. I like I feel blessed to work with people who know it. I'm literally like can you write the Kubernetes command for me? <laughs> and they totally do it for me and I'm like, "Oh my god, thank you." <laughs> Because, like, what I have to do, um, I mean, part of the work we do is, like, sometimes Ruby will crash in production, and we have to figure out what, like, why did it why did it crash and go fix the bugs. So there will be, like, a core file on some uh, container or something mm. in our Kubernetes deployment, and I'll be, like, no way I'm figuring out how to get that file, right? <laughs> and they, like, do it for me. I'm like you are the best people <laughs> in the world. <laughs> but I guess like, to me, it's like, um, if I, I try to figure out, I try to figure out like what knowledge will, what knowledge should I use or what should I learn that can be reusable? Mm. Is learning like, is it worth my time to learn Kubernetes commands? Like if I learn those, if I learn those, is that going to be useful to me in the future? Like when, you know, can that, can that technology be replaced? Is it a commodity, like a commodity technology? Does that make sense? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe, maybe for example, like learning x86 assembly is specific to x86 chips and all these arm, like, of course we're getting arm on our laptops, you know, Apple's producing ARM-based laptops, and I assume that in the future we're probably going to have ARM-based machines in our clouds. So it would be good to learn ARM too. Mm -hmm. But that's like x86 is not the thing I'm learning. The thing I'm learning is how do I put together machine code that the machine will execute? Like how do I put together machine code? Mm -hmm. That's that's the knowledge I'm taking away. Uh, when I look at Kubernetes, I'm like, what am I learning here? I'm learning how to run a command. Like, mm. what is, I can run, I already know how to run commands. Just these are very long. <laughs> yes, yeah. do you know how to run long commands? Yes. <laughs> mm. All right, well, yeah, <laughs> this thank is great. you so much. Yeah. Yes, thank you for having me. I had a good time. It was a lot of fun chatting. Wow, Aaron did not disappoint, don't you think, Thomas? Thomas? Oh, right, he's not here. Well, Thomas, I hope you're doing well and having the time of your life at your new gig. Thanks so much for helping turn this podcast dream into a reality. It really won't be the same without you, but we'll do our best, and I hope you'll tune in. 
For the rest of our listeners, thanks for listening. We have a lot of exciting plans for 2022 and can't wait to show you what we've been cooking up. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Collaborative Craft. Check out the show notes for a link to this episode's transcript and to learn more about our guest. Collaborative Craft is brought to you by 8th Light and produced by our friends at Dante32. 8th Light is a software consultancy dedicated to increasing the quality of software in the world by partnering with our clients to deliver custom solutions to ambitious projects. To learn more about 8th Light and how we can help you grow your software development and design capabilities, visit our website at 8thLight.com. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to Collaborative Craft wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at CollabCraftCast to join in the conversation and let us know who you'd like to hear from next. We'd love to hear from you. Bye.